How would you define your relationship with stress? If you're like most ruckus makers that I know, ugh, when you think of stress, it's like, get it away from me. I don't want any more. It's enough. I have too much. I need to get rid of all of it. At Better Leaders, Better Schools, I'm all about powerful reframes. And when I get one that changes the paradigm, when it is paradigm shifting, and hear an idea that is fresh and new and beneficial and optimizes my performance as a leader, I have to share that with you on the show. Lucky for you, Dr. G is back. She was here last week with her friend Travis, and they were talking about private podcasts. But today, she's talking about her real expertise, which is resilience. And the powerful reframe is, what if we could see stress as a good thing, as a teacher, as an opportunity? Now, I'm not the resilience expert that Dr. G is. I'm just here to set the stage. You're going to love this show. It gives you tons of practical tips. It gives you a lot of food for thought. And then you should absolutely pick up her latest book, From Stressed to Resilience. It is well worth your time and investment. Hey, it's Daniel, and welcome to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, a show for ruckus makers, those out-of-the-box leaders making change happen in education. And we'll be right back after these messages from our show sponsors. Learn how to successfully navigate change, shape your school's success, and lead your teams with Harvard's Certificate in School Management and Leadership. Get world-class Harvard faculty research specifically adapted for pre-K through 12 schools. Self-paced online professional development that fits your schedule. Programs run July 20th to August 17th, 2022. Apply by Friday, July 8th for our upcoming cohort at betterleadersbetterschools.com slash Harvard. Better Leaders, Better Schools is brought to you by school leaders like Principal Gutierrez using TeachFX. Special populations benefit the most from verbally engaging in class, but get far fewer opportunities to do so than their peers, especially in virtual classes. TeachFX measures verbal engagement automatically in virtual or in-person classes to help schools and teachers address these issues of equity during COVID. Learn more and get a special offer from Better Leaders, Better Schools listeners at teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. That's teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. All students have an opportunity to succeed with Organized Binder who equips educators with a resource to provide stable and consistent learning, whether that's in a distance, hybrid, or traditional educational setting. Learn more at OrganizedBinder.com. Hello, Ruckus Makers. Today I'm joined by resilience expert Deborah Gilboa, a.k.a. Dr. G, who works with families, organizations, and businesses to identify the mindset and strategies to turn stress to an advantage. Renowned for her contagious humor, Dr. G works with groups across multiple generations to rewire their attitudes and beliefs and create resilience through personal accountability and a completely different approach to adversity. Author of the new book, From Stress to Resilience, she's a leading media personality seen regularly on Today 
Good Morning America and the Doctors. Dr. G is a board-certified attending family physician and is fluent in American Sign Language. She resides in Pittsburgh with her four boys. Dr. G, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Danny. I'm really glad to be here. Oh, I am so glad you're here because as a resilience expert, we need you. We need you in education because folks are drowning metaphorically and probably even literally. And I want to I start our conversation by bringing you back to med school. And you had an interesting experience. You told me that you realized either your professors were trying to kill you or they were wrong. Bring us to that moment. <laughs> so... I was in medical school in the late 90s, early aughts, and we were told often in our classwork that we should tell our patients to avoid stress. And a lot of my teachers were fond of this phrase, stress is the new smoking. Now, what's great about helping people quit smoking is that you can recommend that they completely abstain from it. This is different than losing weight and a bunch of other things. And it seemed ridiculous to me to use this in terms of stress, because first of all, it implies that you can totally avoid and abstain from stress. The other thing that I realized is that I would then leave the classroom and I would go to my clinical work or a meeting. And there I would hear, you should be doing more. You should be leading groups and you should be involved in research and you should be making sure you have work-life balance and pursuing relationships and spending time with your family. And you should be exercising and you should, you should, you should. And I thought, just like you said, are they trying to kill me with all this stress or are they mistaken? Is maybe stress not toxic? Not to say it can't be dangerous or damaging. That was clear to me. And 20 years later, um, as a family physician, I can tell you, you know, I just, before I was with you today, I just left the office and the hospital. I've seen 20 patients today and stress figures in the pathology and the story of at least half of them, if not more especially the adults. So I do see that stress can be damaging, but I couldn't figure that it was always entirely poisonous or it wouldn't come up in all the things we want as well as the things we don't want. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's an interesting point too, because I know something you believe is that, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong as well, but if stress isn't seen as much as this toxic thing, as this whatever's going to destroy our life or let's avoid it at all costs, but see it more as a, a tool, maybe even a teacher, you know, how do you, how do you look at stress in that view? Here's what I learned when I started to dive into this. Our brains react to all change with the same chemicals. By that, I mean that our brains have a million different functions for sure but have one purpose. And that purpose is to keep us alive. Good news, we are currently alive. Bad news, our brains are wired to believe that all change is potentially dangerous. All of it, whether it's something big and kind of obviously bad, like a new COVID variant, or something small and just a little bit confusing, like your phone is updating its operating system, or something that could be inconsequential, like the vending machine in the staff lounge is changing brands. Your brain says with every single one of those, wait, 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 could this be dangerous? Mm -hmm. And that reaction means that in the face of all potential change, even the great stuff, hey, Danny, that classroom you've been asking for in the building, you can have it. 
move this weekend or move over the summer to that classroom and you wanted it and you campaigned for it and you know exactly how you'd love to set up that classroom to better suit your content or your curriculum or your lifestyle and still your brain says even while you might feel relieved and happy it says wait, 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 wait. and it has three scheme mechanisms to keep you alive the first is what could i lose with this change right that new room am i going to lose uh, having the bathroom close enough to make it between periods and make it back before the bell rings? Am I gonna lose my best buddy next door who can absolutely take my class if I need to step out for something? Am I gonna lose um, seeing the students that I most need to keep my eye on because they always walk by my room? Then it says distrust. So loss is the first safety mechanism. Second safety mechanism is distrust. Are they really gonna give it to me? Three years ago, they told me I could have that room <laughs> and then there was some restructuring and I didn't get it. Am I going to get it? Because there's that person in my department that whenever anybody gets anything, pitches a big fit and then they get it or they make everybody's lives so difficult. It's not worth getting. So distrust. And then the third safety mechanism is a little more subtle and it's discomfort. Man, I did want that classroom, but will it have as many outlets? Will it get the sun at the time of day when there's sun that I want it to get sunlight? Will it be too hot or too cold for my students? Will it be too far from whatever? So Loss, distrust, and discomfort are the three safety mechanisms our brain uses, even while it might be feeling happy or excited or energized, it still clicks through those three safety mechanisms. So what that really comes down to is all change is a stressor, mm. even the stuff we ask for and pursue. If that's the case, just teleologically speaking, just the way we've developed, it can't all be toxic. That's an interesting point. Well, here I am, you know, we're doing this interview. You see the, the setting behind me. We purchased this house almost a year ago. Now with purchasing any new, <laughs> anything really, you figure out uh, the things that need to be fixed with it, right? And there's so much work. There's so much work to be done. I was landscaping the entire like weekend, right? And putting in tons of hours. Uh, it's really good. And we're trying to give, I guess, the house a facelift, so to speak. Uh, but that is, it's stressful, physically demanding, you know, uh, mentally. Can I, do I even have the skill set? Can I learn the skills, you know, to make it possible and make it beautiful and that kind of thing. Uh, so that that's interesting. And it's, but it's something that we wanted is what you're saying, you know? So whether it's positive or I guess an unexpected, maybe negative situation that that pops up in your life, both of them, uh, signal to your, your brain signals to you, those three mechanisms. And it's all about keeping yourself alive. If I understood you correctly. As a doctor, I'm unwilling to recommend to my patients, something that's impossible, avoid stress. Mm -hmm. Even worse than that, I see the damage that this belief system we have in, at least in North America, that stress is dangerous and you should avoid it. And if you're, you're stressed, you're somehow failing yourself. Mm. Uh, and as a leader, and I think this is really important for your ruckus makers, if you're causing anyone else stress, you must be failing. None of that is true. And there's a lot of negative impact of that belief system. So if we can look at it differently, if we can say, hey, there are some stressors that are both avoidable and useless. Let's have good boundaries and walk away from those stressors. Now, the vast majority of stressors that are either unavoidable and or useful, like buying a new home, that is a useful <laughs> change. 
That is a useful stressor. Even giving your house a new facelift, lift, useful stressor. So let's figure out how to be ready, right? Be stronger in the face of those changes and navigate them a little bit more easily. Because I only told you about the bad part of the change cycle. I talked about how your brain hears about a change, either a, a for sure change or a potential change. And it says loss, distrust, discomfort. But that cycle, and it is a cycle, starts to swing on the upside when you remember that you have choices. Hmm. Tell us more. So that's all you have to do. You're saying there's two sides of the coin. There's these negative sides of stress, but there's the positive as well. Am I following? Right. I'm saying that you cannot, and I think I really want leaders to hear me when I say you cannot introduce a change without the brain ticking through those three things. You know people on your faculty or of your acquaintance who seem to reliably move through those very quickly and easily, but they still have to navigate it. You also know some people who ignore them, repress those questions, move forward with no attention to those reactions. They tend to end up with some negative physical effects because stress can be toxic. If you ignore it, it will come out as mental distress. It will come out as physical illness. It will come out as negative coping mechanisms and dangerous behaviors. I, Danny, I, I think that we're all familiar with what happens if, as a doctor, I take my reflex hammer and I tap your knee, right? Your foot kicks, sure, right? It almost did right there. So, <laughs> right. So that's a deep tendon reflex. And if I said to you, I'm going to tap your knee with my hammer, don't kick, you couldn't help it. It just is a deep tendon reflex. You can't control it with your conscious mind. You can limit it a little, but you can't, if I hit the right spot, you're going to kick. Here's what happens. Leaders believe that if I'm a good enough leader and my people trust me and I've done right by them, when I tell them about change or when I introduce change, they won't have those reflexes of loss, distrust, and discomfort. And that's not true. That's like me saying, if my patient likes me, and we have a great relationship, I can stand right in front of them when I tap their knee with my reflex hammer because they would never kick me. It is a reflex. They cannot help it. So one thing I really want leaders to hear is to stop feeling betrayed or hurt or angered when some of your people reliably struggle with change. It's a reflex. It is not a referendum on your leadership. So I'm hearing everybody's going to go through it. They're going to experience uh, loss, distrust, discomfort. They might go through it quick, quickly or slowly, but that's dependent on the person and their reaction to it. So, so what do we do as leaders? I mean, do we proactively plan for that and actually talk? <laughs> Here's what's happening in your brain right now, or what, what, right. what would you So suggest? there's a few things that you can do. One yeah. is, and this is, sounds very self-promoting, but I promise it's free. You can share my resilience cycle with them and my mm. two minute videos so that you can say, Hey, Check out this context. I understand that nothing I'm telling you is brand new, but it's hopefully a framework that's useful. So you can share that framework with your folks and you can even use it, uh, educators, as a little bit of a game. So what I'll do sometimes with students and with educators when I'm doing trainings is I'll print out the cycle. And I've told you now, right, about seven of four of the seven spots on this cycle. And I'll give them game pieces and I'll say, okay. You get one game piece, one big game piece and two little game pieces. And I'll pull them from lots of different games, from Monopoly and Sorry and Clue and whatever. And I say, I want you to take your big game piece and we're going to name a change that we're going through, like we're adopting a new math curriculum. And I want you to decide on this whole cycle. So let me tell you what the other three spots are. So you get the change, loss, distrust, discomfort, choice, engagement, reunification. 
That reunification, by the way, isn't with math curriculum. It's not even reunifying with you, the administrator, or their students. That is reunifying with their sense of self because resilience is the ability to navigate change and come through it the kind of person you want to be. So you've got that cycle. You print it out. You give everybody their game pieces and you say, I need a sense of where you guys are about this new math curriculum. So would you take your big game piece and put it where you mostly are and your two little game pieces and put it where you also are? And you might get people who put their big game piece on distrust. Do not know that this is the right math curriculum. Do not know that this math curriculum is going to show me for a fraud who cannot adapt to this new math curriculum or that my students will be able to handle or that the parents will be able to hear that we have a new curriculum, whatever it is, distrust. And I'm putting one little piece in loss because I still really love our old math curriculum and don't understand why you're messing with it. And one piece in choice or one piece in engagement. And then you know, because these aren't right or wrong answers, where you're starting from. You can do this digitally. You can do this anonymously. There are a lot of ways to use this to gather information and to contextualize your conversation to say, okay, so it turns out that 27% of you are in distrust about this new math curriculum. So I really want to spend 10 minutes of our meeting going back to explain how this math curriculum is a better fit for our school's mission than the last math curriculum and why we're going through this pain. I see that already 97% of you are in engagement with our new payroll system. So I'm not going to waste your time talking about why we went to this new payroll system. I would love for the six people who said they were really still stuck in distrust and discomfort to come to shoot me a quick email so we can meet about it. See how it lets you differentiate where you meet your educators. You can also do this with families. You can also do this with students. But as leaders in the education field, I know that you are worried that the next stressor will be the straw that breaks the camel's back of one or many of your educators. And you're right. You're right that they are experiencing toxic levels of stress. So one thing you can do is measure it, figure out where they are and what you, where you can meet them. What I hear you saying is, I mean, you're creating a feedback loop, right? And you're responding to the data and the real human beings in front of you and, and identifying, okay, if you're all over here, then this is how I'm going to make changes as a leader and meet you exactly where you're at. One of the things that we do when we just ask this question, if you go back to a change that you know some people are still uncomfortable about that was a few months ago, that they probably imagine you think they should have moved on from already. And you say, hey, I'd just like to get a sense of where everybody is about the new holiday schedule we went to, whatever it is. That shows empathy. That shows that you're listening. And one of the four strategies that leaders can use to move other people to be resilient faster, that's different than what we do to make ourselves resilient faster, is empathy. Just asking, can you tell me where you are about this? Instead of having them have the baseline assumption that you don't care where they are, they need to have handled it and moved on by now. That really opens up communication. It helps other people be more resilient when they feel that you care and are listening. So we've, we've talked a lot about stress to this point, and you brought in this idea of resilience. And I know that, you know, it's in alignment with your book from stress to resilience. So how, how would you define resilience? The social science definition that I use and really ascribe to because of what I just said about how resilience isn't, isn't all about adversity or struggle, it's about all change, is that resilience is the ability to navigate change and come through it mission-oriented. 
that might be mission oriented as an organization, but it's also mission oriented as a human to become, come through any change aligned to your own sense of purpose, your own why. Well, I am loving our conversation, Dr. G, talking about how we move from stress to resilience. Uh, we're going to take a break quickly here to get some short messages in from our sponsors. And when we return, let's build upon this idea of resilience. Learn how to successfully navigate change, shape your school's success, and empower your teams with Harvard's Certificate in School Management and Leadership. Get online professional development that fits your schedule. Programs run July 20th to August 17th, 2022. Apply by Friday, July 8th for our upcoming cohort at betterleadersbetterschools.com slash Harvard. Courses include Leading Change, Leading School Strategy and Innovation, Leading People and Leading Learning. Apply today at betterleadersbetterschools.com slash Harvard. Are you automatically tracking online student participation data during COVID? Innovative school leaders across the country have started tracking online student participation using TeachFX because it's one of the most powerful ways to improve student outcomes during COVID, especially for English learners and students of color. Learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer at teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. That's teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. Today's show is brought to you by Organized Binder. Organized Binder develops the skills and habits all students need for success. During these uncertain times of distance learning and hybrid education settings, Organized Binder equips educators with a resource to provide stable and consistent learning routines so that all students have an opportunity to succeed, whether at home or in the classroom. Learn more at OrganizedBinder.com. All right. And we're back with resilience expert, Dr. G, who has a new book that I encourage you to pick up called From Stress to Resilience. Dr. G just defined resilience. And I I heard you before the break talking about how empathy could be one way that you help others out, right? But you said the skills are different when you're building resilience in yourself versus in others. And I, you know, leaders need to work on themselves for sure. So what would you say to them in terms of building personal resilience? So in my own story, Danny, I'd been a doctor and attending. I finished with my training for about five years when I started to realize that there was this gap between helping people get better and helping them be well. And I was doing my best and I couldn't figure out what I was missing. So I did what I'd been trained to do. And I went to the medical literature and a lot of what I found defined that gap, noticed that gap and defined it as patient resilience. So I thought, okay, if that's true, what is that? What is resilience? And like I said, I did a bunch of research um, with a business school here at Carnegie Mellon University and on my own. And I, I come to that definition I mentioned as resilience is the ability to navigate change and come through it mission oriented. And then I said, okay, great. But what is it? If I want to help my patients be more resilient, what's in there? That took years more research. But one of the things that I did uh, with a number of people helping me was aggregate the eight scientifically most validated tools that we use to measure resilience in adults. We started off very basic by listing every item 
on all of those tools and comparing and contrasting and running them through all kinds of analytics. And what we found is that all of those tools that are really respected and used constantly in the field ask really in their 350 items aggregated about eight skills, eight skills that we mean when we say that someone is resilient, that someone can navigate change successfully. Those eight skills are all, every one of your audience, of, of the people listening, when they hear those eight skills, they'll say, oh yeah, I have a lot of that. I have some of that. I have a little bit of this. But one of the best things about this, the best news here, in my opinion, is that skills can be learned. Skills can be developed. It's not eye color. It's not, hey, this is a trait and some people have more of it. And it's about the size of this part of your brain, or it's about this thing that happened in the first two years of your life that that ship has sailed. Absolutely previous experience bears on how you use those skills and how much you've developed those skills. But anyone can at any point move their own ball down the field. And that's what I think is most valuable because I said it would be great to be able to just wave a magic wand and help people navigate change more easily. But it turns out that the best thing we can do is prevent it, which is where educators really excel. You spend your entire career trying to set up children for their best possible future, knowing that hard things will happen to them, knowing that they will have difficult decisions to make, knowing that they will face changes daily, weekly, and, and big changes as well every year. Those skills are skills that educators are busy teaching all the time, even if they don't name them in the exact way that I do. I do want to encourage leaders to look at this list and see, boy, which of those that I feel weak in could I use the most right now? I hope that as you're listening to this, you're thinking about a big change that is on top of mind for you right now. So if it's okay with you, I'm going to list those eight skills, and I'd love for everybody to put it in the context of thinking about that big change that's most top of mind for you, whether it's for your educators, for yourself, whatever it is, and think about which of those would be most useful to you. Certainly okay. Yeah. The eight skills that we found are building connections, setting boundaries, building connections. Most educators are like, yeah, I got that. And then I say setting boundaries, and many people are like, oh, that's hard. (laughs) <laughs> Ooh, you got me right there in the gut. Yeah, yeah. Opening to possibilities. It makes sense that if you have only one picture of how something can be perfect mm. and not even just perfect, the only way it could possibly turn out right, you can see how navigating a change would get that much harder. Managing discomfort. And I think this is so incredibly important because a lot of people in that cycle I mentioned, they get stuck in discomfort. They lean on all of their negative coping mechanisms and they can't move forward to choice because they're so overwhelmed by the discomfort that they're feeling. Next is setting goals, quite simply because you can't navigate a change and be mission-oriented if you don't have a mission, if you don't have a goal. Finding options, more than one choice of how you might get to where you want to be. Taking action and persevering. And that last one was really interesting to me in my research because Think about it for a second, Danny. When we encourage people to persevere, how do we usually do it? What are all the posters? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like hard work, you got this type of thing, you know, Right, so we tell people to persevere. Mm -hmm. And then maybe we give them examples of other people who have struggled, persevered, and succeeded. Between us, we could probably name 12 people easily, that you know, Mm -hmm. famous people that we've been told their perseverance stories. What we don't do is teach the steps of perseverance. 
the that peanut butter meal. and jelly challenge, right? To sequentially order how somebody would make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. We don't sequentially order how people should persevere. We just say, and this is a place where I got stuck in my writing. We tell children, finish this sentence. If at first you don't succeed. Try, try again. Yes. And we tell adults doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results is our definition of? Insanity. Right. So I spent all this time looking at my section that I wanted to write about this skill of persevering, trying to reconcile (laughs) those two truths. And I figured out that the how to persevering is really simple. It is trying again and changing something. Mm. Maybe something small, maybe something big, maybe the color of it, the day you do it, who you ask for help. But just trying something over and over and expecting it to be different doesn't make sense. But you have to try over and over again to build your ability, your skills, your experience, all that. So with each of these skills, I saw it in my book to not just say, here it is, but to say, here's how you build it. Right. So how to make the PB&J and how to navigate that, that messy middle part. Cool. Uh, can you speak a little more about boundaries? Because like you said, I, I can... I can I can feel the ruckus maker listening, right? Where you brought that up and he or she's, oh, it's tough. And I I think I (laughs) would want to, and I want to assert, I think it's hard for educators because they're so compassionate and people oriented that they often overcorrect to be pleasing. And there's a difference between pleasing and service too, and education service. But yeah, please, please uh, expand on setting boundaries for us. First, let me defend my proposition that setting boundaries does help with resilience. The idea here is that you can't navigate all the changes at once. So if you can align the changes that you take on with your priorities, if you can say, okay, these 68 things are aiming towards my own goals, my mission, my organization's mission, being the kind of person I want to be, but there are some things that aren't. If you can say these stressors are unavoidable or useful or both, but there are some stressors that are avoidable and useless, you can see how when you put up a few boundaries to say that doesn't match with my priorities, that isn't my responsibility in this situation, it gives you more bandwidth to navigate the changes that are mission critical to you. Also, when you take on every cause, when you set out to answer every question, when you hear every single complaint as a requirement for you to fix something, you end up either unable to address each of those the way you want to, or you burn out. And and ruckus makers, we need you. We need you five years from now, not just this year. There are so many educators that are running full steam and they're going to have shorter careers because of it, because their bodies and brains just, it's not sustainable. So we need you to set some boundaries to take things 14 through hundred off your list so that we can have you around moving towards your mission in ways that serve you and your community not just your community. And I'll make one more argument for setting those boundaries to educators. As uh, I I got to be on your show once with my good friend, Travis Allison, and he says, you are always teaching. 
whether you realize it or not, there's always someone looking at you and saying, boy, I want to be like Danny. And whether it's a student or another educator or someone in your town or someone in your house, they're always thinking, that's how, who I want to be. How does he do it? Oh, he does it by getting even less sleep than he said he needed. He does it by not exercising, even though he said he wanted to exercise. He does it by skipping lunch every day. He does it. And then they think that's how you do it. Yeah, there's there's a couple. Uh, I'm going to go. I'm going to riff just for a second and then uh, we'll, we'll throw the mic back to you. But I have a number of enemies, concepts, ideas, really, in education. In the business world, it looks like this. You, you see a, a Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram post and it's supposedly this business person who's made it and they had a Maserati or the Lamborghini or they're on a yacht, you know, but they've rented it for the day. You know what I mean? They haven't actually learned how to build a successful business because they're full of fill in the blank. Uh, In education, you know, I think one of the, one of the enemies for sure is the lunch deal, which you brought up. And I think that's the modern day school martyrdom. Like, look at me. I'm so important, so busy that I can't even give my body what it needs to work at an optimal level. Like, hold up, you know, I'm sure Dr. G eats lunch. I'm sure Tim Cook over at Apple eats lunch. I know I eat lunch. Busy, successful people eat lunch because you need to pause. And you asked me how I'm doing today, too, because this is a third podcast interview. First of all, that was a really nice touch. Very empathetic. It warmed my heart. And I told you, hey, I took a break, right? And I went out for golfing too, so that I could be here present for you because I knew if I didn't, this interview would suck. Okay, so that's one thing. The other deal is this idea of having always an open door. And I think that's a terrible uh, myth and a terrible idea that's been passed down to school leaders. Again, it's the pleasing service. But if you're always accessible and they say people over paperwork and leave it all for the evening, I I get the heart behind it, but if you do that, you don't have a life, right? And like you said, we need you five years, 10 years from now, you'll burn out. I even had a a leader that I support in the mastermind who mentioned, I save my paperwork from when I'm at home, but I admit I have no life, right? So that's fine. If you don't want to have a life and you don't have family and that kind of stuff, then I guess you can do that and be all right, maybe. But if you always had that open door policy and you're always accessible, then that's not going to work in the long run. And to me, that's all about setting boundaries. So I'll, I'll pause here for a second. Is there anything else you want to add? And then I'll transition us to uh, the last few questions of the show. I love the idea of saying, I'm going to close my door sometimes so that I can open my heart more often and wow. I can open my mind more often. Yeah, that's great. And if you don't, you know, there's no opportunity to uh, have that deep work or wow, to open your heart. What a, that's a really striking image. Thank you so much for sharing that. All right, Dr. G, if you could put a message on all school marquees around the world for a single day, what would your message read? Change is opportunity that scares us. And Dr. G, if you're building your dream school, You have no limitations regarding resources. Your only limitation is your imagination. How would you build that dream school? What would be the three guiding principles? Um, The first guiding principle would be flexibility. When I picture, and I have four sons who are 13 up to 20. When I picture the world that they are going to grow up in, that they are growing up into, I really picture a world that has 
fewer structures that we're accustomed to right now. Fewer, you got to work from this hour to this hour, everyone. Fewer, you've got to work in this particular space from this time to this time. And yet I know having raised four kids and been a camp counselor and an after school um, uh, part-time community center worker, the kids really do need structure. They need some previewing. They need to know what's coming next. So I think structure with flexibility is how I would want to, and I'm picturing a K to 12 school because the second thing that I would really want to do is create community, accountability for everyone. I love the idea that kids will come to a school to get what they need from it and to give what they can to it. Now, my grandparents fled communism, so I'm not looking at purely communistic. I want, I want grownups to be in charge, uh, but I really want kids to know that they're needed and not just wanted and that we need their help. We need their help with the younger kids. We need their help with cleaning. We need their help with um, making everybody who works there feel valued and see their contribution matters. And then the third principle that I would have is um, expertise, helping everybody who's there, encouraging them to be there in their role, but also volunteer their expertise in a couple of ways. You know, there are going to be kids at that school who whatever, you know, their own uh, abilities or differences that they live with. They also have people in their family that they've learned other languages from or that they understand, you know, maybe they have a sibling who's deaf or blind. And so that gives them a different perspective and helping people name and honor their own expertise. The adults and the kids is a really important guiding principle for me. We covered a lot of ground today, Dr. G, talking about stress and switching that to resilience of everything we discussed today, what's the one thing you want a ruckus maker to remember? When you present change or the possibility of change to someone, they need a little bit of empathy or time or information or autonomy to help them move through those reflexes. But those reflexes are reflexes. They're not a referendum on you or your idea or your role. So I really want you to remember change isn't bad. Stress isn't bad. It depends how we navigate it afterwards. Thanks for listening to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, Ruckus Maker. If you have a question or would like to connect, my email, daniel at betterleadersbetterschools.com or hit me up on Twitter at Alien Earbud. If the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast is helping you grow as a school leader, then please help us serve more ruckus makers like you. You can subscribe, leave an honest rating and review, or share on social media with your biggest takeaway from the episode. Extra credit for tagging me on Twitter at Alien Earbud and using the hashtag BLBS. Level up your leadership at betterleadersbetterschools.com and talk to you next time. Until then, class dismissed. Mm-hmm.